I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female, where every week I speak with women changemakers who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest as I literally devoured her book titled Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. Soraya Shamali is an award-winning journalist and author whose writing appears regularly in media around the world. Her work has focused on defining what it means to be a woman in a world built by men. Her narrative skill, careful research, and humorous tone have been described by The New Yorker as relentless and revelatory. In her book, she brings these skills to offer a critical look at the social construct of anger and its effects on women's lives. Here's my conversation with Soraya. Soraya, it's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for joining me on The Brand is Female today. Well, thank you, um, Eva. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. And well, the first thing I want to ask you, I'm, I'm really excited to get into your book and into uh, you know, everything that you, you address in your work. But I want to start by asking you, growing up, what did you picture or what did you imagine you'd be doing later in life? And uh, did you already foresee you'd be interested in being an author? Um, and maybe you already knew you were a feminist, but I'm wondering what, what you were dreaming of becoming later in life at a younger age. That's such a good question. Um, I don't know that I had a good impression. I knew that I loved writing. Um, I started writing the way many people do, many girls in particular, in a diary. Um, I was very young. I was seven or eight and um, have continued that my whole life. Um, And so I think that reading and writing were always part of the way I saw myself. But I don't think I saw myself as a writer. Um, That seemed to be uh, out of reach um, for Mm -hmm. me. Um, But by the time I got to college, I was writing. I started a feminist journal in college at Georgetown University. And Mm -hmm. then I left college and became an editor, which I really hated. Um, and, and then I left writing entirely for a long time, for probably 15 years, but then I went back whole, whole, I mean, like full time, um, mm-hmm. 10, 11, almost 12 years ago now. And what was that journey like? And you've, you've just mentioned how, you know, you had kind of a first foray in writing and then left it for a while and came back. Right. but. How did you connect with what you wanted your work to be about and what you wanted to be talking about, you know, through your books? Um, Honestly, it wasn't really more what I wanted. It's what I felt was really necessary, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't, I I had to, you know, financially support myself in my 20s. And um, writing doesn't earn a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so right. after doing that for several years, um, I thought, you know, I'd like to maybe buy some new clothes and eat better food. <laughs> <laughs> and so I moved to the business side of media. I applied to business school. I went straight through application processes and interviews, and it just wasn't for me. I, I was sitting in an interview, and um, I was talking to the interviewer, and 
we had a conversation at the end of which I realized I have zero desire to be here, like none. Um, mm. So I went back and I, I started working um, at Gannett Newspapers, but in uh, market development. Okay. Uh, and so I earned a lot more money than I would have as a writer. And that eventually became a job that had a lot to do with the implementation of what we now think of as big data, but at that point was literally mm -hmm. the first forays into building databases to support uh, subscribers, like how do you build a subscriber database, and also how do you build advertising databases, and how do you bring those together. Um, mm -hmm. And so I moved from media into data tech. I, I worked mm -hmm. for a company called Claritas, which was one of the pioneers in what was then called geodemographic segmentation. Um, it, it didn't include anybody's uh, individual personal data. It was all based on geography. Um, right. And um, eventually I became a consultant. I had three children under the age of three, which as anyone will tell you is a rude shock. It feels <laughs> like someone is driving over with the bus every morning. Um, uh, and it's not really conducive, as we well know, especially now during COVID, to a uh, high-pressure executive job. Parenting, right. parenting uh, does not make you an ideal paid worker. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did what a lot of women did, um, which was called at that stage opting out, which I thought was absurd. Um, mm -hmm. We weren't any of us opting out. We were literally, yeah. I think, m many of us uh, trying to keep our heads above water, um, and that meant foregoing paid work. Um, and right. as many women do, looking for flexible work. Um, and I, I'd say, you know, this is a, a situation that is a privilege in many ways, because in order for that to happen, you more or less have to be in a, a hetero marriage with mm -hmm. a wage-earning spouse who's a man yeah. who is making enough money to do that um, yeah. and as we know that's really not the way the world functions it's not the way most mm -hmm. people live um, it didn't you know it, it made a certain type of uh, financial sense because all of our systems are calibrated to reward that structure our tax systems our wage systems our yes. status systems Mm -hmm. um, and so that eventually became very clear to me, and um, I started to write while I was still doing some consulting. And then my children approached adolescence, and I felt that I had to do something so that as young girls and women, uh, they were not be they, they would not be quite as vulnerable to. Uh, sexism, ambivalent, benevolent, mm -hmm. hostile, or violent that I had. I felt that as a young feminist, I believed very naively that the world would progress and that mm -hmm. I could take my feminist sensibility into the workplace and that was mm -hmm. sufficient and that right. was wrong. Right. Um, and so I wanted to find a community of people who agreed with the assessment of problems that I had, which frankly wasn't common in 2010. There was so much backlash mm -hmm. in a lot of uh, sectors of society. Um, my whole life, I think, to say openly that I'm a feminist or that I'm angry about issues related to social justice and intersectionality, um, that's mm -hmm. not like a welcome conversation that people have, <laughs> you know, 
it, like in the break room or at a dinner party right. or on the sidelines of a sports game. Like nobody wants to have that conversation. Um, right. So I thought, you know, if I write about feminism and feminist ideas and feminist academic work in a mm -hmm. more socially progressive um, and mainstream media way, that's the most I can think to do to provide uh, an intellectual framework and a structure for thinking about some of the things that we go through as girls mm -hmm. and women. What inspired you? And you just brought up your your anger and 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 women ang women's anger, which ended up being you know the title for for your last book. Tell me about why that anger is so important. Um, and you've just I think done a good job of summing up where your anger specifically came from. Um, you've also mentioned how that anger is not typically welcome. Um, in most fields and in most conversations and, and by most individuals. Uh, but why did you feel it was important to talk about that anger and uh, to a certain point celebrate that anger? So I think that um, what I, I used anger um, as a filter, a Trojan horse, to look at the status mm -hmm. of women in various capacities um, as individuals, as citizens, as human beings, um, as objects of uh, sexualization and violence, um, as laborers. And it turns out that using anger in that way can help um, shed light on the relationship between our gender, our gender role expectations, and the stresses mm -hmm. and um, inequities that exist as a result. And so mm -hmm. in the 2016 U.S. election, uh, what was so striking was that male political candidates could effectively leverage populist anger. They could demonstrate it themselves. They could speak directly to the rage of citizens. Uh, they could tap into a global tide of um, populist anger and also, I would say, masculinist authoritarian rage. Mm -hmm. And they yes. could do that even in their own embodiment. They could look messy and red-faced, and they could slam podiums, and they could <laughs> raise their voices. And that entire constellation of responses and attitudes and behaviors buttressed their leadership. It actually confirmed mm -hmm. people's ideas about leadership and about masculinity yes. and about men's roles as, author as authority you know, in our society. But women couldn't do that, and certainly not a white woman like Hillary Clinton. Um, and, I, and I think that that is related both to her race and to her gender, um, because in particular, white women in America serve a function um, in that identity, which is to be in need of protection to be fragile and to be right. vulnerable and to need a strong, as they said about Trump, broad-shouldered man. I mean, how ridiculous is this conversation, <laughs> right? Um, but it, in fact, you know, her, her identity made it doubly hard for her to express emotion, particularly anger, and um, mm -hmm. I think demonstrated the double-edged sword of women doing it at all and of a white woman in her position doing it. Like for black women, like uh, Kamala Harris, there is a baseline assumption mm -hmm. that she's aggressive and angry because of stereotypes about black women. And that right. is very inhibiting. And those stereotypes, like people like me, 
um, spend a lot of time pushing back in media against those stereotypes. Um, but mm -hmm. the stereotypes apply in a different way to white women in that when white women tap into anger or express anger, they're more likely to be categorized as mad, as crazy, you know, um, and that mm -hmm. sort of stereotype. Yes. And if the woman happens to be uh, brown, if she's uh, Hispanic or of Arab descent, the categorization is a little different. It's more related to sexualization or food consumption. You know, she's so hot mm -hmm. when she's angry. Mm -hmm. She's so spicy. I mean, the, the, the words are kind of absurd. Right. And so that election really, it, it, it showed this disparity. And uh, using anger seemed to me a good way to talk about how socially constructed our identities are, our emotions are, mm -hmm. And the way we relate to each other privately, interpersonally, politically, professionally. Um, so that's how I used anger. I really thought, what does it look like? How do, how do we police women's anger at every stage of life? Mm -hmm. So the book starts off in childhood and looks at early childhood norms and expectations and the way we socialize girls. Um, you know, to speak more politely, to not curse, to put others first, to not interrupt, to not be disruptive. Um, all of which, all of which requires us to subsume our own needs and our own subjectivity. Mm -hmm. um, and so we learn to do that. We learn to suppress and repress and distort. And we also learn to feel like bad people if we express anger. And that's really problematic because anger is an expression of need and knowledge and awareness. It's the expression. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it, it's an expression of your expectation of reciprocity from mm -hmm the people in your life or the community you're part of or your political system. And so the, the key mm -hmm. question is, what happens? Why, why do we choose to build societies in which we sever this very important emotion from femininity and in which we deny mm -hmm. women that right? Um, mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is, of course, we also put men in these boxes where they are not supposed to, as boys, express the feminine emotions tied to vulnerability and seen as weak. So empathy, fear, right. sadness, um, even kindness. Some, you know, some boys are really shamed yeah. for expressing kindness. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, being, being nice, nice is, is, is almost a derogatory term. That's right. Him. And mm -hmm. so it goes from, you know, I sort of go there into sexual objectification and adolescence and sort of the racist inflections of all of that. Um, and then through what I think of as the fertile years, whether you choose to be a mother in any capacity or not, it's irrelevant in mm -hmm. some ways because if you are femme identifying um, and uh, you know think of yourself as a woman, you're automatically as assumed to be a, a mother in waiting. Um, and mm -hmm. then from the, the point of that mothering expectation to the larger societal demand um, that we care that we care for children, that we care mm -hmm. for coworkers, that we care for the people around us, that we care for the elderly, um, to the point where we ourselves have this um, suppressed anger and frustration and resentment and rage that becomes material in our bodies and causes uh, a lot of harm and pain. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. 
What's great about TD's services for women in business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners who can provide education, financing, mentorship, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. And this brings me to want to ask you, where do we go from here? And as women, and most of our listeners are women, um, how can we break this pattern? How can we, and I think it's always, we always find ourselves, you know, dancing on that fine line of, uh, we still want to be able to have productive relationships, have positive interactions in a workplace where most women encounter, you know, the, the stereotypes mm-hmm. and are, are facing the, the leadership model that you referred to, where if you want to be a leader in the workplace, typically, and, and access a, a position of any level of seniority, you have to be perceived as a leader, which typically includes a more aggressive, yeah. a more, uh, 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 you know, forward um uh attitude except if you're doing that as a woman you'll be called right. a bitch you'll be called angry you'll be called you know so what it in in today's world and i think there's there's a difference between the conversations that we need to have to uh, create impactful change mm-hmm. but as women living that reality on a day-to-day basis where do we go from here and how can we manage uh in in you know in in the current world but still try to have impact and make change happen right. in our in our everyday decisions and attitudes um so i i really tried in the book to summarize what you just said in a chapter at the end um <laughs> and um the reason i say that is because i actually i thought a lot about as i was writing each chapter i was like well should i try and put a kind of more solutions oriented end cap on every chapter and it didn't mm-hmm. It didn't make a lot of sense because in the end, there's just overlap. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're right. in. Um, and, and so mm-hmm. I think there are several things. One is, I think that it's important that we understand our own anger first and foremost. A lot of us learn to mm-hmm. minimize the way we feel and to use language Absolutely. that does that. So, you know, if, I, I, I've never walked into a room and said to a man or a group of men, how are you, to have them say, I'm exhausted, I'm so stressed. But Mm -hmm. every woman I know um, legitimately, if I know them well enough, will start with, I'm exhausted, I'm so stressed. And Mm -hmm. um, when you scratch the surface of that, what you end up with is imbalances, a lack of reciprocity, a feeling that you are being taken for granted often Um, And so the question is, why do we ourselves treat ourselves in this way, right? How do we divorce the idea that um, expecting to be cared for makes us bad people as women? And so the first thing is name their anger appropriately and Mm -hmm. um, make some meaning out of it. Very often writing helps people. Not, I'm not saying that because I'm a writer, but, but because it is, in fact, an approach that is well understood. Mm-hmm. It helps you cognitively right. to process emotions in a different way. Um, but if you can say, okay, I'm angry, what am I really angry about? Um, am I punching down because I can't punch up? You know, Am I mad at my boss or am I mad at my spouse and am I getting mad at these children because they 
can't really respond, right? Um, mm -hmm. What is my anger telling me? What do I want to change? And who can help me do that? And who can help you do that can happen in many contexts in many different ways in terms of relationships. So if you have a spouse, why is your spouse, why, why is there a fear, particularly among heterosexual women, that if they express need and they express it with anger, that their spouse is going to get angry back, possibly violent, or reject them? And studies show this is true. The expectation is not misplaced um, because it turns out the majority of men in heterosexual relationships actually think that when a woman is angry that she's being unreasonable and selfish. And the goal right. that they have, the response they have is to get angry instead of actually listening to the substance of what she's asking for. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's a very particular relationship context. Um, it turns out, particularly, for example, that in lesbian couples, there's a lot more balance and negotiation in the allocation of unpaid labor, for example. And mm -hmm. that's because of a difference mm -hmm. in the nature of the relationship and the ability to understand that there should be an equal distribution of paid and unpaid labor. Um, in the workplace, mm -hmm. it often helps to find allies and collaborators and what I would rather call accomplices. And those are people who will mm -hmm. act tangibly in your behalf because you and they realize that you will be penalized for advocating for yourself. And so building those networks of support in the workplace are super important. And I would say that it's important for women to really think about not holding other women to a higher standard. Why do we expect right, other yes. women to somehow be magical creatures um, and have such a low bar for men, such a low bar mm -hmm. for behavior? And mm -hmm. so um, mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And then another aspect of this that's so important is that a lot of people have a lot of influence over children and we need mm -hmm. to use that influence wisely and to model the kind of behavior that we would want them to engage in that is healthy to not penalize girls and boys for not acting like ladies and gentlemen I really mm -hmm. struggle to um, to say in a polite way how d damaging it can be to hold boys and girls to gendered standards of behavior um, why mm -hmm. can't we teach children emotional competence and how to be kind people without yes. infusing them with these uh, very damaging gendered expectations and norms? Um, and I think that we also need to think hard about our ideas about leadership. Yes. Leadership is currently primarily defined in terms of masculinity. And mm -hmm. so... Absolutely. You know, I think that that has very deep roots that accrue from the time we're born to the time we die. Um, and our society has to accept at some point that this is really hurting our societies. And it is. We know mm -hmm. it is. Um, and yet it's a very hard problem to shake, you know. Um, and then the last thing I would say is I really would advise that people not buy the kind of neoliberal language of personal empowerment. Uh, empowerment is right. not power. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. really need power and um, mm -hmm. the kind of empowerment that has been monetized and is being sold often to women, especially in terms of self-care. Um, yes. I think that when you have to engage in frantic levels of self-care, it's because you're not being cared for. 
-hmm. by the people around you or your society. And that's really the crux of the problem. That, yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a very valid point. Um, and I want to talk about the role that organizations play. And I'm asking that because a lot of the listeners are women entrepreneurs who run their own company. They might be in a leadership mm -hmm. position. Um, you know, I think we have an individual responsibility and you've just outlined ways that we can, we can help impact uh, change and, and help advance and, mm -hmm. and, you know, change the situation. But how can organizations do a better job? And I'm asking this also as this episode's running during Women's right. Month, where we know, um, you know, it's the pink washing right. <laughs> uh, milestone of the of the year, milestone moment yeah. of the year, where every company is going to be uh, externally celebrating right. the the women within their ranks, and then we look at what they're actually putting into practice, and the the, the reality is not always as uh, uh, as nice. Right. Um, what is the responsibility that organ organizations need to take and what are steps that uh, they can take to properly help uh, change that leadership mm -hmm. culture within their ranks? So, um, first of all, I think, I, I know this sounds really wonky, but there's some great writing on how patriarchal our systems and corporate organizations are. And I always think mm -hmm. that it's beneficial for people to think structurally about these problems as they build mm -hmm. their own businesses so that they're not reproducing the structures that in fact hurt them in the end, right? Yes. Um, so understanding the way that uh, white supremacist patriarchy functions and the ways in which it continues to be rewarded is important from that perspective, right? Mm -hmm. We need to build new types mm -hmm. of collectives and organizations. Um, so, for example, mm -hmm. I just had this conversation um, with a, a, a person that I work closely with, and um, we had to produce an org chart. And I am not really interested in the traditional org chart because it is it does everything we just described, and it's a power over system, mm -hmm. and it's um, very hierarchical. And um, you know, we could go into the ways in which org charts mirror militaries. I mean, there are lots of interesting sociological <laughs> yes. things. But in fact, there are alternative models, you know. So like the Girl Scouts mm -hmm. has a model of organization that's a series of concentric circles. And mm -hmm. if we're starting businesses, if we're running businesses, we don't have to just do what's been done. We can create different types of organizations and management styles mm -hmm. that understand yes. why we need to change leadership, why we need to change uh, relationships within organizations, why we need to reward a different type of standard of creativity, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And so Absolutely. I think that's really important. The, the other thing, um, you said something that I was, it made me, I, I really wanted to respond to. Um, Maybe the women's oh, month yes. where every company celebrating. Women. I get hundreds of emails saying, will you share our women's empowerment anti-rape thing? Or, you know, mm -hmm. look at our wonderful pink products, as you say. And, you know, he, and, <laughs> and the first thing I ever do, which I really urge people to do, is go and look at the board of directors of the organization that's trying to get you to yes. support them. And absolutely right. And so I just I'm that terrible person online who's like, oh, look, there are 12 people 
and none yeah. of them is a woman and none of them is a person of color and I'm I like this is such a sham right and so yeah. we, we need yeah. to be able to demand that these institutions stop the window dressing and yeah. um, part yeah. of that yeah I mean part of that is just the using the power we have um, whatever power we have whether it's the power of the pocketbook or of yeah. a platform or a broadcast medium to say no you don't get to do this you know you don't get mm -hmm. to claim that you are a champion for girls and women's rights and then do you curse on this show because i'm so close to cursing you can't curse on the show <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll just check that little box that Apple provides us to say that there's explicit no, content. No, I won't do it. So you don't have fine. to check the box. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because I was just reading a headline um, that came out yesterday about Twitter committing that 25% of its executives will be minorities or women by 2025. And I mean, they're, they've been getting a lot of backlash because first the announcement was understood to be uh, only minorities and then they clarified it was minorities or women. Uh, so putting putting the two or, or sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Basically putting the two in the same bucket. And also why only 25 percent? How hard is it to get and we're talking about executives here, not even a board. Um, executives can be a, a pretty pretty wide group of individuals within a company. Why is it only twenty five percent in twenty twenty one? So yes, I mean I, I think what you what you say is true. I think first of all, it's always disappointing to think that here we are in twenty twenty one, and that these numbers are so skewed, right? Like especially in tech. I mean, tech was a world in its early inception that was filled with women, women as programmers, women as engineers, women who were doing such exciting work. And um, there was a real shift and a backlash in the 80s and 90s. And I would argue in education throughout the aughts that has resulted in more occupational sex segregation than we ever could have imagined in 1985 or 1995. And so the question I have with a number like the one you just said is, okay, well, what does that even mean, right? Let's say that 25% uh, of Twitter uh, will now be women or, or femme-identifying workers. Chances are very high, and I know this from research that I've done and writing and interviews with industry experts, that those women are going to be clustered in and around very uh, traditionally gendered work, the care, the care work of the organization, right? Customer service, content moderation, legal, um, human resources, personnel. I mean, honestly, it's almost laughable uh, because I've seen org charts where women now have titles like VP of people, you know? And um, the one example that really sticks in my mind uh, recently is Facebook. Uh, a couple of years ago, they announced a reorganization of their engineering team. And I think there were maybe 13, 14 men uh, and one woman. And the men were all VP or senior VPs of various parts of product development. And the woman's role on the product development team was head of integrity. And again, it's this sort of odd imposition of a very outdated sensibility about men and women, certainly, 
Um, and, and I will say that in that panoply of people, no, nobody black and hard to see who may have been a person of color, but vast majority white across the board, very evidently. Um, but again, you know, you think, well, the VP of integrity. So women are, again, are responsible for keeping the boys in line when they get out of line. Like, what is that? You know, so it's, I think it's a, a complex equation um, within the disappointing reality that this is where we are. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's it. And it's, and if you're just going to label a group of, you know, HR advisors and maybe marketing, which often goes to women as well as, you know, executives and then count them in your, in your ratio for, for women leaders. But if the culture is not changing internally, your board composition is not changing, we're not getting anywhere. Right. I mean, that's the point, you know, and, and the thing is that at a company like Facebook in particular, you know, the COO, Sheryl Sandberg, has such visibility. And um, it's really a false equivalence to say, well, there's Mark Zuckerberg and there's Sheryl Sandberg, because that's really not the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And additionally, you have this complete array of faceless, nameless, anonymous men, and they are all men by their own accounting, who are making very important decisions about the future of technology and social media, and yet we don't know who they are, and they're not being trotted out in a very public way, um, and they get to retain this anonymity, mm -hmm. uh, which is also very problematic. And even within Facebook, I, I did a long-form article with my writing partner, Catherine um, Booney, that was released in September, and it was about all of these issues. And you know, even at Facebook, an ex-senior employee referred to that team of women who were, you know, dealing with content and legal issues and the sort of what happens after we launch a product, right? Not what happens to create that product. Um, they were sort of called the, the housewives. The, that's the, that's sort of the, the um, cleanup crew for the risks that evolve. Mm -hmm. Do you think that... And I mean, I hate using the term the next generation because I don't even know who that is anymore. But um, are maybe, you know, young women graduates who are coming on the on the, the job market today. Um, do you think they are equipped and maybe um, and, and it's not just about the women graduates, about the men graduates as well, who we hope have a different outlook and mindset. Um, do you think we will see that change happen if, you know, if we haven't moved since 1992 and we've possibly been going backwards, uh, what is it going to require for the change to finally happen? I think the change is really two steps forward, one step back. I think, again, there's only so much that we as individuals can ever do, right? These are societal problems and cultural problems and economic problems and mm -hmm. social problems. And um, in fact, I think girls and women have been equipped for a very long time. I think that boys and men have not been equipped. Boys and men have not been equipped with evolving healthy notions of masculinity or of gender or of how to see their own identities. Mm -hmm. um, one of the core issues I think we face is that the prevailing ideology of masculinity is one that mm -hmm. it, it, it has two main pillars, protecting and providing. Um, you know, virtually anywhere in the world you go, a good man understands that he needs to provide because masculinity is so closely aligned with income generation, with feeding and, and like producing money for your family. Um, and he needs to protect. 
Um, and those two things, both of them are built on the notion that girls and women have to be vulnerable. You know, why do you have to protect someone if she is safe? And in fact, most girls and women are endangered not by strangers, but by men they live with fathers, brothers, uncles, aunts, spouses, you know, and that model of masculinity doesn't serve women or their safety. It doesn't really protect them. Um, it, it's, it includes a patriarchal notion of privacy that actually endangers children and women. Um, and on the providing front, I think this has to do with things like Me Too and Time's Up. Women are saying we can and will and have to earn our own income and we right. should be paid fairly for that work. And, um, oh, by the way, I'm also not safe at work, right? I'm being sexually harassed as a, as a hostility to my workplace equality. Mm -hmm. um, but all of that together means that men can easily feel like they're also failing to provide. Because if someone's saying, I'm good, you don't need to provide for me, what does it mean? You know? And so I think, I think it's probably a much more urgent issue to think about why we haven't changed these ideals of masculinity in 50 years. We're still socializing boys the way they were socialized 50 years ago. So this past year, with the, the pandemic we've been living through for the past 12 months now, uh, has been especially tough on women, um, both from a, you know, a, generally mental health, health inequities, uh, job loss, uh, the, the extra burden of taking care of children at home and, and taking care of the household in, in, in many cases. And it's really put a spotlight on the inequities that were already present in our system and made us realize how broken our system is. Um, what's going to happen next, in your opinion? So what's going to be the state you know, for women as we start recovering from this pandemic crisis? So I think this does definitely fall into the two steps forward, one step back. I don't think there's really any ambiguity about what's going to happen in the next 10 years. We know what's going to happen. We've seen it over and over and over again. I mean, we've seen lots of economic studies about what happens in the wake of disasters or pandemics or epidemics. So in the 20th century, whether it was the influenza of 1919 or Ebola or SARS or H1N1, it's always been the case that women take the hardest economic hit. They are family caretakers, they're workplace caretakers, they're the majority of low-wage service workers, they're the majority of healthcare workers, so they're vulnerable on all of those fronts. They're, they're more likely to be exposed to illness, mm -hmm. they're more likely to be caring for the ill, and they're more likely not to be paid for any of that work. Mm -hmm. And so in the instances of other epidemics, as we are seeing in this one, women will have to leave the paid workforce. So in the U.S., more than a million women. Um, and they can't just bounce back. You don't just say, hey, I'm back. You know, mm -hmm. the pandemic is receding, or maybe in a few years we can actually say this pandemic is over. Um, and I want my job back, and oh, I want the promotion that I was just on the verge of getting, or whatever it may be. You know, it, on average, I think it's between 10 and 15 years that it takes a woman to get to the place where she was before. Um, and mm -hmm. that's really mm -hmm. a generational issue. 
on a slightly more uh, positive note. Well, I don't know if it's positive. <laughs> it may not be positive. On a more personal note, uh, my favorite question to ask guests on the show, and it is, what do you wish women would do more of? And maybe it's what should women do less of, right? You know, I th- however you want to answer that question. I think that's the same question. I think women should do more of doing less. I really do. I think that um, I think that we're so relied on and socialized to just keep doing, to keep keep everyone afloat. And there are a lot of men who do this too. I don't want to suggest that. But for men, it's different. It's not an inherent part of the way we grow into adult. They grow into adulthood in the same way. You know, it's very clear. Again, lots of studies for many years that we socialize girls to put others first and to negate their own needs in order to be society's nurturers. And Boys and men are totally capable in every way of being nurturers. There, there are some human societies where men are parenting more intensely than women, you know, and um, it's not, I mean, I think a lot of people think it's biology, you know, and I, I think that men are very good caretakers um, and women are clearly capable of being very good wage earners. You know, we just need to de-gender those roles so that, the people who want to can do them and the people who need to can do them without having it be perceived as a denigration um, or a selfish act if you choose not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Well, Sarai, thank you so much for speaking with me. That's so funny. <laughs> and yes, it took yes, a few tries to get here, but now, now we have a great interview. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. <laughs> I know. I'm so glad we could do it. All right. Well, thank you for your persistence. It was lovely to talk to you again. Same here and all the best. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for the support of The Brand is Female. You got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in a week with a new guest. Yeah.